Well, good morning. My name is Daniel Harmon. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, where I am working to complete my studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It is so good to be back here with you again. I think I was here in May. Uh, this time I brought along my daughter, Annabelle, and we'll be celebrating her ninth birthday this coming Friday, so our family looks forward to that. This morning we're going to give our attention to Psalm 148. If you could go ahead and turn there, Psalm 148. It's on page uh, 457 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you don't have a Bible. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. Well, the main phrase, the main idea in Psalm 148 just jumps out at you loud and clear. Praise the Lord. Everything in all creation, whether in heaven or on earth, is called upon to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You see that in all caps, the word Lord there. That should key you in that the word Yahweh is being used in the text Yahweh is the personal name of God. It's the name God gave himself in Exodus 3. It's not a title. It's a name like Paul or John. The Jews considered God's personal name to be too holy to speak. And so when they would come across it in Scripture, they would say Adonai instead, uh, which has been translated as Lord since ancient times. So when we read praise the Lord in the Bible, all caps, we're reading praise Yahweh. And the phrase taken together in Hebrew is just hallelujah. Did you know that? Hallelujah means praise the Lord. You hear Yah there at the end, hallelujah. Well, that's just the shortened form of Yahweh. John Piper, he helpfully shared what he likes to do when he sings hallelujah in any given worship song. He'll, he'll think to himself, no, I don't praise you Baal or Nebo or Molech or Rimon or Dagon or Chemosh. I turn from you with disdain to Yah. I praise Yah. Hallelujah. So think about that next time here at the Cape Bible Chapel when you sing a song with hallelujah in it, what you're really saying to the Lord. Yahweh reigns supreme over all the false gods of this world. He alone is worthy of praise. And I wanted to point out uh, Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150 all begin and end with the same singular phrase, praise the Lord. That's how the book of 
Psalms ends with five hallelujah psalms. And I think that is fitting for the songbook for God's people. That's what the psalms uh, is. It, it is a songbook for God's people when they come together for worship. Well, Psalm 148, it kind of works like Google Earth, if you've ever used that, that program. So, you know, you open it up, and there's the globe just hanging there in space. You type in your address, and you begin your descent, that particular point on the globe. Well, the author of Psalm 148 is going to take us on a similar journey. Uh, verse 1 is the starting point. Praise the Lord from the heavens. So our gaze is first caught up in the sky and space and in the spiritual realm beyond. And uh, that takes us through verse 6. And then in verse 7, we read, praise the Lord from the earth. So we're going to read of the ocean and precipitation and mountains and animals and people. And that takes us through until the end of the psalm. So you can divide Psalm 148 in half, uh, verses 1 through 6 and then 7 through 14. Each section, you'll notice, ends with the phrase, let them praise the name of the Lord. You see that in verses 5. In verse 13, and then immediately after that phrase, in both cases, we're given the particular reasons why the Lord should be praised. So each section has a where, a what, and a why. Where the Lord's praises originate, what is being called upon to praise the Lord, and why those praises should be given to the Lord. So that's a general structure of the psalm. I'd like just to walk through these two sections and make some observations, and then... Um, offer a few points of application to our own lives. So looking at the first section, verses 1 through 6, we read the word praise nine times. It's worth rereading. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens. Praise, praise, praise. Praise, it's like a hammer, a hammer of wonder and joy and thanks to the Lord. First six verses, right out of the gate. Now, we know people have been tempted to worship angels. We see that happen in the Bible a few times, but you remember the angel stands the man on his feet and say, he says, no, no, don't, don't worship me. I am a fellow servant. Worship God alone. Certainly, there are examples of Gentiles uh, in, in history, perhaps even now, who worship the sun and the moon, maybe even the clouds. I think we have mention of the clouds at the end of verse 4, uh, the waters above the heavens. Uh, we know pagans look to the stars to tell the future. Well, all of that is dashed away in these first six verses. The objects of pagan worship are summoned to worship Yahweh. So don't worship the sun. The sun is not paying any attention to you. The sun has his eyes fixed on the Lord. The sun is worshiping Yahweh. The sun and the moon were created by Yahweh with a word of command. He commanded and they were created. He gave a decree and there's the sun and there's the moon and there's a septillion stars. The Lord spoke worlds into existence. Just think about that. With his words alone, there they were. Just like that. Some of you parents uh, might have uh, the uh, Big Picture Story Bible that you read to your kids. We've got it at home, and I've always liked the way it describes creation in the first few pages. David Helm, the author, he writes, The Bible is God's story, and it begins with these big words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you know how God created everything? 
simply by speaking words. Imagine making the world with words, strong words, powerful words. Isn't that good? Our kids need to know that God creates merely by speaking. That's how powerful he is. What the Lord commands happens, period. There is no power in heaven or on earth that can subvert what he wills to take place. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away, it says. The Lord made a septillion stars and probably more that we don't know anything about. In case you're wondering, that's one with 24 zeros after it. 10 to the 24th, and not one is missing. You note the word all in verse 3, all you shining stars. Not one in a septillion can refuse to praise its maker. The same goes for the angels, all his angels, all his hosts. So the unifying principle here is this. If it is created, animate or not, it has a duty to praise the Lord. Now, we can understand how conscious, intelligent beings like angels could praise the Lord. But what about stars? Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So how do the heavens declare? How does the sky proclaim? How do the stars praise Yahweh? Well, I suppose by doing just what Yahweh wants them to do. They must offer praise to God by their sheer existence. Stars shine, verse 3. And they're shining, they give praise to God. I know we sing twinkle, twinkle, little star to our children, but really it is one nuclear explosion after another. Those stars are praising the God who upholds the universe. They are doing what they were made to do. And for us, I think there is an experiential component here. Who can stare into a clear night sky and not be hushed and humbled? The moon and the stars compel us to ponder the God who made them, and then praise erupts from our lips, at least for those who love Him. Romans 1.20, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So that's how the angels and the heavenly lights and the sky and the clouds bring praise to God. They draw our attention to the one who made them, and then praise springs forth. And I think we see this idea even in the structure of the psalm itself. First, the praises rain down from heaven, and then the earth responds back. That's how it's supposed to work. So we'll look at that now, uh, verses 7 through 14. So remember Google Earth, right? We've been with the angels in heaven praising the Lord, and we've, we've moved to the sun and the moon and the stars down to the clouds. And now we're going to fly down so fast that everything is going to get really blurry. At least on my computer it does. And we're going to go down to the depths, down to the bottom of the ocean. And we're going to work our way back up. Praising the Lord from the earth begins with the great sea creatures and all deeps. Did you know that there is a trench in the Pacific Ocean that has a maximum known depth of about seven miles? Just stop and think about that for a moment. Seven miles in the water straight down. That's the deepest part of any ocean on earth. And we have actually discovered creatures that live down there. Praise the Lord, you great sea creatures and all deeps. 
Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind doing what? What does it say? Fulfilling his word. What falls from the sky is not haphazard. That flaming bolt of lightning is doing the bidding of God. And this reminds us again of verse 6. He established them. So stars don't just wander in space wherever they want to go. Nothing in nature, not in space, not in the atmosphere, not in the depths of the sea is due to random, chaotic processes. Everything is under the direct control and order and arrangement of Yahweh to his praise. So out of the oceans into the air and up the mountains we go to the fruit trees and cedars. Verse 9, all of them unconsciously praising the Lord in accordance with their natures. It's why apples taste good. It's why cedars look so majestic. It's why snow-topped mountains fill us with awe. It's why lightning looks so beautiful and terrifying at the same time. All of these things are putting on display the glory of God. And He deserves every ounce of praise that they can give. Up the scale of creation we go to beasts and all livestock, verse 10. And there are millions of people around the world who revere the cow. But here the cow is called upon to worship the Lord. Whether it creeps or whether it flies, every animal is commanded to praise the Lord. And then finally, finally we come to people. We come to people, you and I, right here, right now, living and breathing. You put your hand on your wrist and do you feel that rhythmic pulse Every beat is given by God. Why? What is the single greatest reason that you are alive this morning, right now, living and breathing? You are alive to render worship to the Lord. All of us are. That is the fundamental reason we exist. The glory of God is at the bottom of it all. Kings, princes, rulers, the young, the old, all peoples, the authorities and the common people among the masses, Presidents and prime ministers, Tanzanians and Thais, the elderly boys and girls, all of us. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Verse 13, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. So yes, there are kings who rule, but they are just kings of the earth. Rulers of the earth. And we see that in verse 11. So President Obama is subjected to the limitations of the earth. He has given a particular sphere of influence and authority that is true, but no more. The grandeur of Yahweh, on the other hand, towers above the earth and heaven. Spurgeon said, there is more glory in God personally than in all his works united. Praise the Lord. Well, you might think the psalmist could end with verse 13. He has given us a feast of praise that has spanned the entire universe. It is all-encompassing. In fact, it's interesting just to count how many times you see the word all. All angels, all his hosts, all you shining stars, all deeps, all hills, all cedars, all livestock, all peoples, all rulers. But he's not done yet. There yet remains a special group of people that sit atop the scale of worship and this is a group that can praise God uniquely in a way that the other objects of creation cannot. 
Verse 14, he has raised up a horn for his people. His majesty is above earth and heaven, yet he has stooped down to raise up a particular people. God is good to all people, but he has a special love for his covenant people. Just note those phrases, for his people, for all his saints, for the people of Israel. So this chorus of praise has spanned the universe, but it comes to a climax here with God's people. I'm not exactly sure what the psalmist has in mind, specifically with the horn here. Uh, We know that the horn was a symbol of power. When, When a horn was lifted up, it was a public assertion of power. In fact, this word has been translated as power or strength in in different parts of Scripture. Uh, Perhaps the psalmist is thinking about the Israelites' return from exile or the many times generally God has rescued his people throughout history. Regardless, the Lord has provided something here in the horn for his people that they do not have in and of of themselves. God's redemptive love is on display. And this, I think, is in contrast to what we saw earlier because in verses 5 through 6, God's glory in the natural world is mainly about his rule over it. He commanded, he established, he gave a decree. So that's the language of ruling. But with his covenant people, God's glory is shown primarily in his love. He gives us his power in our weakness. He brings us near to him and all his saints in turn, give him praise. I do want to point out, though, Luke 169. Some of you, some of you Bible scholars might have already thought about this. Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, right? He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So now with New Testament eyes, that is really helpful to us. Zechariah is talking about the Messiah. Zechariah is talking about Jesus. And you remember what the name of Jesus means. It means Yahweh saves. Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. Every deliverance of God's people in the Old Testament is a pointer to Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. So a horn has been raised up for us as well. We the mere Gentiles. Ephesians 2.13, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord for that. The one whose majesty is above earth and heaven has come to save you and me, a people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And so the relevance for missions here is massive. Uh, Maybe you've read uh, the book by John Piper, You can tell I'm a fan of John Piper, right? So let the nations be glad is the title. If you have an inkling of a desire to go on the mission field, you've got to read Let the Nations Be Glad. Uh, Just the first two paragraphs alone absolutely shook me 15 years ago uh, when I read this. Let me read it to you. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal in missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. 
The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. So did you hear that? Missions is about calling others to joyfully join you in praising the Lord with our entire lives and especially with our lips as we speak the gospel to other people. We are calling them to find their joy in God, to join us in this chorus of worship. Well, to wrap up, I want to offer a few points of application because uh, you, you just can't offer to other people what you don't have yourself. So, when you read Psalm 148, you can't help but see that there is a joyful preoccupation with God here. A joyful preoccupation with God. Would that, would that describe your life? Do the praises of God come quickly to your lips? Are you nurturing in your mind a genuine delight in the Lord? Now, there are times of lament and deep sorrow and crying out to the Lord in desperation. We all know that. I think the rest of the Psalms teach us that. So I am not saying buck up and put a smile on your face or something like that. That, that would be silly and immature. And, uh, at the same time, there's a tension here, right? At the same time, if you are given to a downhearted, melancholy frame of mind in an inordinate way, you need to learn how to rejoice. Because, Christian, there is so much to rejoice in. There, there really is a difference between passing through a truly difficult season of life and suffering pain because of it, on the one hand, and then on the other, giving yourself over to that despondency. There's a difference between those two things. We have so much to rejoice in. It will do you so much good. I want to urge you, by faith today, even in the midst of the most unimaginable pain that only maybe you know about here in this congregation this morning, begin by faith to praise the Lord. One foot in front of the other. Praising God will clear the fog in your mind and put steel in your spine. One foot in front of the other. New mercies every morning, clinging to Christ. We talked about perseverance earlier. That's what this is about. Choosing to praise the Lord every day, no matter what. And for all of us, I'd like to offer just a practical way for us to grow in this discipline of praising the Lord. It's pretty simple, actually. I want you to take stock of the idle moments during your day. So the 20-minute the drive home from work, or maybe the walk to work. You get out of your car, the parking lot, you know, you're walking to your office. Um, standing there with a the hose at home as you water the garden. Walking out to the mailbox on a Saturday afternoon to get your mail. Claim those moments to ponder the greatness of God. Look at the sky. Smell the breeze. Sing a hymn. These kinds of things, they'll do you so much good. So, so do you have this kind of reflective, meditative exercise uh, in your life? You don't always have to have a quiet room, you know? Uh, you can practice this anywhere. Well, <clears throat> I personally, I don't think I really grasped this concept of worship and being happy in the Lord until my senior year in college. I was at Georgia Tech. I was already married at the time. Uh, my wife was teaching kindergarten in downtown Atlanta. We had one car, so she would take it to work. I had a bike to get to class a few few blocks away. We were living in Georgia Tech family housing. And, uh, well, somebody stole my bike, even though we lived on the second floor, and I kept the bike on, on the balcony. Somebody actually climbed up there and stole my bike. Well, I, I, looking back, I thank the Lord for that situation because it forced me 
to slow down. I was on my feet for the rest of the year walking to class. It forced me to slow down. I would take these bulletins. Uh, at our church, the, 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 the songs were printed there, and I would, I would sing as I walked by myself, and I ended up memorizing many of the hymns. I would pray, and I would just find my soul happy in the Lord before I got, got, to, got to class. I would arrive on campus and see hundreds and hundreds of students milling about, most of them knowing nothing of this joy and solace that I was just experiencing, uh, this glory of God, and it would motivate me to evangelize. So you see, Praising the Lord is so right, it spreads rightness everywhere. Praising the Lord will do you so much good. Well, you might have heard of the phrase, the mortification of sin. That's putting to death the deeds of the body. But there's also vivification. Yeah, there are evil habits that you need to kill. There are things in your life that need to die, but there's also things you want to live. There are things that you want to see grow. And praising God is at the top of the list. So Psalm 148 teaches us that we are to deeply relish the glory of God. His greatness and goodness should be evident in our praises. So tell God why you think He is so wonderful. And let your words and ways among people demonstrate that God is great. So practice it. Worship well. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, your word this morning. I pray you would teach us to give you the praise that at this moment is resounding both in heaven and on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.